Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to the church at Ephesus. And he begins in verse, or will begin in verse 16, where Paul said, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Some translations show that or translate that as the eyes of your spirit being enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. He's praying three things. That we'd know who we are in Christ, what belongs to us, and that we would know the power of God that resides in us. Now, this is that power that worked in Christ, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. Folks, notice that two things that are mentioned there. God raised Jesus from the dead and set him at his own right hand. Two specific things. Keep that in mind. We'll see it again. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Now notice it's not just a little bit above, it's far above. Far above. This is a phrase that in the Greek means it's so far beyond what it's being compared to that it really shouldn't even be compared. That's what far above means. It's so far above, it's almost foolish to make the comparison. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now let's keep reading into chapter 2. You know as well as I do that Paul didn't write this in chapter and verse. He's continuing with the same thought. Verse 1 in chapter 2, it says, And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Remember the two things that the Bible says in verse 20, that was wrought in Christ, the power of God that was wrought in Christ. It says he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. Here it says, and you has he quickened. In other words, he's raised you from the dead too. Now think about that for a second, folks. What raising of the dead is he talking about? See, it's real easy for the church world to say that the raising of the dead had to do with God raising Jesus up from physical death. But if that were the case, he can't be making the same comparison to us. Notice in verse 1 it says, And you hath he quickened. That's past tense. Hath he quickened? Has he given life to? Has he raised from the dead? Being raised from the dead in verse 20 of chapter 1 is talking about raised from spiritual death. It's a hard thing for a lot of Christians to accept, but Jesus had to be born again. Jesus was made sin for us. He became death, spiritual death and sin in our place. When Jesus died on the cross, gave up the ghost as it were, one of the last things he said was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's the point where Jesus died. 
That's the point where he truly laid down his life. I'm not just talking about his physical body. That was a part of it too. But if Jesus was made sin for you, then that means he lost or gave up, submitted himself to the loss of righteousness. That's hard for people to accept. But it has to be true. Because in the same way God raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 2.1 says God raised you from the dead too. Well, what happened with us? When we were born again, the exchange of unrighteousness, sin and unrighteousness, was made for the righteousness of God. Notice verse 6 of chapter 2. Verse 1 says, and you has he quickened. Verse 6 says, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Folks, the Bible says you have the same life that Jesus has and you have the same place with God that Jesus has. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. He's talking about authority. The Bible is the book of authority. It goes back to God's original intent for mankind. Genesis chapter 1 tells us the creation account. Verse 26 says, after God made everything, he made man and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Well, what was his purpose for making man? Genesis 1.26 is the only place it tells us. He said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Let them have dominion. Let man and woman have dominion over the earth which he created. In other words, let him have authority. That's what dominion is, isn't it? Let him have authority over the earth. Let him have authority over the earth. Folks, there's not one place in the New Testament that ever tells us to pray about or pray that God would do something about the devil. There's not one place where the Bible tells you to petition God to do something about the devil. But there are four places in the New Testament that tell you to do something about the devil for yourself. Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus was resurrected, appeared to his disciples and said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. That word power is the word authority. All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now, a lot of people stop reading right there and say, well, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. But the next thing it says is he immediately delegated that authority to mankind on the earth. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He gave mankind authority. Mark chapter 16 elaborates on what Jesus said to them when he appeared from, uh, after his resurrection. He said, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll cast out serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. 
Casting out devils wouldn't be possible if we didn't have authority over them. Laying hands on the sick wouldn't have results, healing results, if we didn't have authority over sickness. James chapter 4 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Didn't say he'll flee from Jesus. Says he'll flee from you. Doesn't say God will resist the devil for you. It says you are to resist the devil. First Peter chapter 5. Peter says the same thing. Casting the whole of your care over on him for he careth for you. For your adversary the devil as a roaring lion. Doesn't say he is a roaring lion. It says he's a, he as a, is as a roaring lion. Well what is a, a roaring lion like? He makes a lot of noise. So your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, may implies permission, doesn't it? It doesn't say seeking who he can devour. He has to deceive us in order for us to give him permission to do his work in our lives. Finally, it says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20, uh, Ephesians chapter yeah, that's right. It's Ephesians 5.27. Maybe it's 4.27. I don't know why, why I can't come to a decision. But in the book of Ephesians, <laughs> in the 27th verse of one of the chapters, <laughs> it says, neither give place to the devil. If you didn't have authority over him, it would be no way for you not to give him place. 4.27? Neither give place to the devil. That's four times in the New Testament where the Bible says that we have authority over the devil. The Bible is a book of authority. It is a book of authority. One of the things that I've come to realize here of late, one of the things the Lord started dealing with me about, a couple of weeks ago I shared my healing testimony and it's still ongoing there are still some things some of the last symptoms that I'm dealing with but by faith they're already done but one of the things that, that the Lord really brought to my attention it's been a long haul hadn't been a real fun ride but folks, I've got to tell you, I wouldn't take anything in the world for it. Don't want to do it again. But I wouldn't take anything in the world for it. Because I found out some things that I couldn't have found out any other way. And one of the things the Lord has dealt with me about, which I'm not prone to do this on my own, places that were harmful and, and situations that are unpleasant, I don't spend much time thinking about those. I don't like thinking about those. But the Lord has brought some of these things back to my remembrance. Some of the difficulties and some of the ways or the way that I felt so powerless. I felt so helpless knowing that I didn't have any strength of myself without a question, without any doubt whatsoever. No question about it both physically and spiritually, I was at the low point of my life. 
and stayed there for some period of time. And at the lowest point of my life, the weakest point physically and spiritually that I've ever experienced, the power of God in me was still greater than the devil. Turn with it to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Folks, I feel like I should offer an apology. I don't go by my feelings. But for the last eight and a half years, I feel like I've done a terrible job. I feel like, I, don't get me wrong, I know God can use anything. And before I experienced any of this stuff, it was a, a very common thing for me to think that was a great service, only to find out that other people didn't think so. <laughs> and the reverse is true, too. There were times I wanted to just hang my head in shame for the poor job I did, and I had people line up saying, oh, that was wonderful, that was wonderful. So that taught me that I don't know what's good. I mean that to be completely honest. But over the last eight and a half years, struggling with some of the things that I have, at the very least, I haven't had command of my full, or full command of my faculties. There were things that it was difficult for me to even to remember. And I would finish a service and think to myself, my gosh, I forgot the most important thing I was planning to say. Well, I'm regaining some of the control of my faculties back. But during that time, during the most difficult time I've ever experienced, during that time, God has taught me about authority and open minds to what authority is in ways that I'd never seen before. Now, I knew what the Bible said about having authority. I knew what the Bible said about exercising authority. I knew what the Bible said about resisting the devil and all those things I was acting on, which was the reason that things changed. But I never realized the importance that Jesus put on teaching about authority. We point out Matthew chapter 7 after Jesus is uh, concluding the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 28, it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now the word doctrine means teaching. Notice it doesn't say they were astonished at him. It says they were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He taught them as one having authority. Now notice the word one is in italics there if you're reading with me in the King James, which means the translators added it. It literally means for he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. Well, the word as is a word that pertains to how, the method in which something is done. And the word having means to hold. So literally, the literal translation of verse 28 or verse 29, I'm sorry. 
The literal translation is, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Now, I don't want to build a doctrine on one portion of Scripture, so let's compare this to Mark chapter 1. Beginning in verse 21, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. So this is a different situation. The other that we just read in Matthew chapter 7 was outdoors at the Sermon on the Mount. Here, it's in the synagogue in Capernaum. Different situation entirely. He entered into the synagogue and taught, and there they, they, they were astonished at his doctrine. Same word, teaching. For he taught them as one that had authority. Same exact translation as the other verses. He taught them as or how, having, meaning to hold. He taught them how to hold authority. Now the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word should be established. We've got two different witnesses, two different occurrences, two different places, where the Bible tells us specifically that Jesus taught them how to hold authority. He taught the people how to hold authority. Let's keep reading. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked them saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? They're talking about his teaching. What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around about Galilee. You've got two different passages, two different scriptures that tell us what Jesus taught, or at least part of what he taught. He taught how to hold authority. He taught that man had authority. He taught them that man had authority. Folks, God's original plan never changed. God made man for the purpose of having authority or dominion here on the earth. And that never has changed and it never will change. That's always God's intent. Since God never changes, he said himself, I am God, I change not. Then his original plan for man has to be his present day plan for man. Look at some things that John told us by the Holy Ghost in John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 12, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name. Notice verse 13. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name. Now the word ask there doesn't mean request. It means to call for or to require. It's not asking God for anything. It's using your authority to determine how things are going to be. Whatsoever you shall ask, call for, or require in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you shall ask, same word, call for or require. If you shall call for or require anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is putting it in your hands and in mine. He's saying we're going to decide how things are going to be. Why? Because you have authority on the earth. The devil wants you to think that you don't have any say in this. That you're just open and and subject to whatever attack he would bring against you. But the Bible says you decide. Jesus said whatsoever you call for or require in my name. Whatever you put a demand on in my name. I will do it. Look at chapter 15. Verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. This word ask is the same word that we looked at in chapter 14. It means to call for or to require. Whatever you place a demand on. It shall be done unto you. Verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified. In other words, God likes it this way. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Now what fruit is he talking about? Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. He's talking about the fruit that results or comes about from the exercise of your authority. From the exercise of your authority. God is glorified when you exercise your authority in the earth and change things. Now we've got other scriptures that identify authority as well. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is where Jesus asked the disciples, Who do men say that I am? They respond, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the Old Testament prophets come back. And then Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter answers and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to him in verse 17. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee, notice verse 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice it starts on the earth. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. One translation that I particularly like says of this verse, you shall exercise authority to bind on earth what has been bound in heaven and to loose on earth what has been loosed in heaven. In other words, we know that there's nothing in heaven because it's the kingdom of God, because it's the domain of God himself. We know that there's nothing in heaven that can hurt or destroy. There's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no poverty, there's no lack. There's nothing in heaven that can hurt or destroy because God has bound anything that could hurt or destroy from entering into heaven. He's made it off limits to the devil. He's made it off limits to the law of sin and death that governs this earth. 
So here Jesus is saying we have the right, we have the authority to refuse to allow any things into our lives here on the earth that we won't encounter or won't be like when we get to heaven. You have the ability to bind on earth. You have the ability to loose on earth. This is not the only place Jesus said this. Look at chapter 18. In verse 18 it says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now he's talking about church discipline here. He's talking about if, if uh, somebody's sinned against you, how to handle it. But he says the same thing. He says we're the ones that have authority on the earth to bind and loose. We're the ones that decide. He didn't even say he decides. He doesn't even say that God will make things the way he wants them to be. It says you have the ability, you have the authority to determine how things are going to be for you and yours. You remember in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus comes to the fig tree, he saw it from some distance and saw that it was full of leaves, which should have been a sign of the fruitfulness of the tree. But he comes to it, and he doesn't find any figs on it. And then it says in Mark's account, it says, and he answered, and he answered, and said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And he answered. Folks, you need to realize that circumstances in life are a voice that cry out against you. See, that tree was saying that the earth won't produce for man. Paul said this, writing to the church at Corinth, he said, There are many voices in the air, and none without signification. There are many voices in the air, and none are without signification. Now, holding this in your thoughts, look with me to, to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. It says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I looked at that verse, and I've been familiar with that verse for a long, long time, many, many years. But it's only been recently that I came to understand what the voices are that rise against us in judgment. I've always assumed that was the devil bringing accusation. He is the accuser of the brethren. And so I always looked at it as just the devil's voice. Well, that certainly is true. But every circumstance of poverty or lack is a voice of the earth rising in judgment against you. Every sickness and every disease, every symptom of sickness and disease is a voice that rises against you in judgment. These are the things, uh, well, back to the fig tree in Mark chapter 11. That fig tree that was operating contrary to God's purpose for fig trees was a voice that said to Jesus, the earth does not have to provide for you. And Jesus answered it and cursed it 
And by the next morning, it had dried up from the roots. See, folks, symptoms of sickness and disease are voices that rise up against you saying you're not worthy to experience God's best. It's a voice that rises against you to judge you as to, as to be someone who cannot or will not partake of God's best. It's a voice that rises in judgment saying God won't help you. And we have to operate in exactly the same way that Jesus did and answer those voices. Look at verse 17 of Isaiah 54 again. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that that's not a guarantee. That's not an absolute. No matter what happens, no weapon formed against a Christian shall prosper. If that were the case, then Christians would never die sick. If that were the case, then no Christian would experience failure. So the no weapon formed against you shall prosper has to be conditional on the rest of the verse. This is the thing that throws so many people off in the church world because they can't understand how well-meaning Christians, people that love God with all of their hearts, people that live a Christian life, as an example or a witness before others. How could God let people die sick like that? How could God not institute healing or perform a healing work on them because they're such good people? There are weapons that the enemy uses against us that will prosper if we don't exercise our authority and act on what the Bible says. We know that to be true, right? Well, then what are the conditions? No weapon formed against you shall prosper, but every tongue that rises against you in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of God. Well, if, the, if it's the heritage of the servants of God, the heritage of Israel, how much more would it be the heritage or the inheritance of the children of God? This is a part of our inheritance. Well, what did we inherit? We inherited the authority to answer circumstances in life, to speak to problems that the devil will raise up against us, to speak to sickness, to speak to poverty, to speak to lack. And notice how the verse ends. It says, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. See, the only reason, the only way that circumstances could be successful against us is if we really haven't been made righteous in the sight of God. Well, the fact is, we have been made righteous. And the blood of Jesus has made every one of us worthy of everything that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. But even in that, we have to know it. Even in that, we have to exercise authority in that regard. It's not automatic. It's not like falling on us like ripe cherries off a tree. It's something we have to take hold of. It's something we have to exercise our authority toward. It belongs to us. 
but we have to exercise our authority to take hold of it. Now, how do we do that? You remember in Matthew chapter 8, the story of the centurion? A centurion comes to Jesus and says, My servant lies at home sick of the palsy. Jesus answers, The centurion is somebody that helped build the synagogue in Capernaum. The Old Testament law is, I'll bless those that bless you, bless Israel, in other words, and curse those that curse Israel. So through his action in blessing Israel, he's a candidate for God's help. So Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion says, there's no need for you to come. He says, for I am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me, and I say, go to one, he goes Tell another to come, and he comes. And then he says, speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. Jesus responds and says, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This is the greatest display of faith that I've ever come in contact with or have come in contact with. What made this man's faith something that Jesus marveled at? He understood how authority was exercised. He didn't talk about Jesus being the Messiah. He didn't talk about Isaiah 53 that Jesus would fulfill. He didn't talk about Jesus being on the earth to be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, for the chastisement of our peace being upon him or bringing healing by his stripes. He says, I understand authority. I know how authority works. I know from experience that when I speak and give commands to those that are under my authority, those commands are followed out or carried out. That's what Jesus marveled at. Jesus marveled that a centurion that hadn't been in any of his teachings, that hadn't heard the doctrine that everybody was amazed at, hadn't heard him tell how to hold authority, he marveled at the fact that the centurion understood that authority is exercised and released through words. That's it. It wasn't like he had great faith for Jesus to heal paralytics. He understood one thing. That authority was exercised and released through words. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In the book of authority. That's what the word of God is folks. It's the book of authority. That authority brings deliverance. That authority brings healing. That authority brings the new birth. It brings eternal life. Verse 17. Paul writing by the Holy Ghost said, For if, the word if, there's four words in the, in the Greek language that mean uh, if, or is used to translate as if. Some of them, one of them primarily, should be translated since. This is one of those words. For if, or if, for since by one man's offense, 
Death reigned by one. We know that to be true. We know the law of sin and death came upon the earth because of Adam's disobedience and his sin against God. For since by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more that they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, we know what the gift of righteousness is. We know the exchange. Paul goes on to tell us in some of the following chapters about the ministry of reconciliation, the exchange that was made. Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sin so that our sin was paid for and resulted in us taking hold of his righteousness. Now that's true for everybody that's been born again. That's true for every member of the body of Christ. We have been made righteous. It doesn't have anything to do with how we feel. It doesn't even have anything to do with whether or not we look like we're righteous. If that were the case or if those things mattered, then we'd be operating on our own righteousness rather than his. But since our righteousness is of him, it's perfect righteousness. It's complete righteousness. It's righteousness that can't be hindered. It can't be undone. It can't be improved upon by any action on our part whatsoever. It's his righteousness. It's his complete righteousness. It's his perfect righteousness. Not ours. So the Bible says very clearly. Paul is saying in Romans 5, 17. He's saying those of us that take hold of that gift of righteousness, those that extend our authority by faith to accept what the Bible says about us. Now, other Christians don't want you to do this. Other Christians don't want you to to believe that you're righteous. Typically, anybody that doesn't want to accept that they're the righteousness of God doesn't want anybody else to either. It makes them look bad. But if we extend our faith, not just to be born again, but to accept, to think in line with, to speak in line with the fact that we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, then there's only one other criteria for us to reign in life, as the Amplified says, reign as kings in this life. And that is to receive the abundance of grace. Now, what is the abundance of grace? Well, the Bible says grace is the reason that God sent Jesus to the earth, brought him to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Grace is identified in the illustration of somebody of great renown stooping down to help somebody that's not in their same class of being. The abundance of grace literally means and can be identified with anything and everything that we'll ever need. God said himself by the Holy Spirit that since God didn't withhold Jesus, which is the best that he has, the best there is, how will he withhold any other good thing from us? 
Therefore, grace can be looked at as being the all-inclusive whatever-we-need terminology. By the abundance of grace, Jesus paid the price for sin and sickness. By the abundance of grace, Jesus was made poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. So grace really means anything and everything Jesus obtained for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. So with that in mind, Romans 5.17 is telling us that since these things are true, since Jesus obtained for us everything that we will ever need, since the gift of righteousness is ours, we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Then our exercise of authority to walk in those things will cause us to reign in life as a king. Not barely get by. Not suffer and hold out till the end. but to reign as a king in life. What king does not reign in his own domain? What king does not have dominion in his kingdom? Well, what is our kingdom? The kingdom of God. We've been translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, the Bible tells us. And authority brings that into being. I heard Brother Hagin tell a story in Nashville, Tennessee in 1979. And he was talking about, he was holding a crusade in Nashville and it was on the authority of the believer. It was the first time I'd ever heard him in person. I'd heard uh, one of his tape series prior to that. Mountain Moving Faith was the name of the series. And I had worn the cassettes out. So I had a chance to go from Birmingham, Alabama to Nashville, Tennessee to hear him in person. And he relayed a story that he said then and later on as well. That got him started on studying and understanding, researching and understanding the subject of authority. And what authority the believers had. He said there was a, a man that was a part of his church. He and his wife were a part of the church that he was pastoring in Texas. And he worked in the oil fields. Oil was big business and booming back then, I guess. And he said he was working the, the derrick somewhere in the, above the ground. And something happened. He lost his grip and he fell down into the machinery. Well, everybody just knew instantly that the guy had to be dead. They stopped things, stopped the, the uh, well that was working under operation, called the doctors, called the ambulance, got everybody out as quickly as they could. And all that they'd been able to do is pull him out of the machinery. He was mangled up pretty badly. And his wife got to the scene. It was a real small town. So everybody knew almost instantly what had happened. 
And the whole town came out to see and to help and to do what they could. The man's wife got there before Brother Hagen did. And so as soon as Brother Hagen got there, the doctor went to him and said, he's all but dead. He said, we can't even move him because that would certainly kill him. I don't expect him to last another 30 minutes. Well, immediately after that, the doctor walked away and his wife walked up. Their name was Haynes, I believe. And so Sister Haynes said, the doctor doesn't think Daddy's going to live, do they? And Brother Hagin said, no, he doesn't. And she said, isn't it good that we've got inside information? Now, folks, everything else hinges and revolves around that statement. If she had not made that statement, I don't believe any of the other testimony could have taken place. She said, isn't it good that we have inside information? Brother Hagin knew that she was talking about inside the Bible. He said, yes, ma'am, it's very good that we've got inside information. So they prayed right there that he would live and not die. Well, Brother Haynes tarried. He didn't die like the doctor thought that he would. And so after being there for a little bit of time, the doctor decided, all right, we're going to put him on a stretcher and, and get him in the ambulance, ambulance and drive as fast as we can to the hospital and just hope and pray. This is the doctor talking. Just hope and pray that he doesn't die on the way. Well, they wound up taking him to the hospital, got him into the hospital room, but really couldn't do too much for him. They couldn't even take him down to x-rays because he was that critical. Brother Hagen and Sister Haynes just continued to stand in faith that he'd live and not die. Well, time passed. And finally, the doctors, he began to get better. And the doctors said, I think he might make it now. He's got a 50-50 chance. And Brother Hagin said, well, we knew that he had a 100% chance. Now, folks, it's easier to talk about these things after it's over than while it's going on. It's easy to look back, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything here. But I know from experience, it's easier after God comes through to look back and say, yeah, I knew that was going to be that way all the time. But there's a real battle to fight. And that battle has to be fought in many cases when you feel your weakest. Thank God it doesn't depend on how strong we feel. So anyway, he continued to get better. But then he came to a place where he took a turn for the worse. And it was in the middle of the night. Brother Hagin was trading off with Sister Haynes to keep somebody there. He said, we think the doctor even, we talked about it. And he said, I think the doctor even knew that we were he keeping him there, holding on to him somehow. But like I said, he took a turn for the worse. And the doctor said that he wouldn't make it till morning. So Brother Hagin, middle of the night, goes out into the hall. He said, I don't know why I did this. He said, I'd never done anything like this before. But in the hallway, and, and he didn't have the, the, the teaching on the believer's authority that we've even had. He didn't know much of anything along this line. And he said, I don't know why I did it. 
He said, but I went out into the hallway and was walking up and down the hall and it was empty. Nobody was there because of the lateness of the hour. And he just said, Lord, I'm not going to let him die. In the first place, he's 49 years old and that's too young to die. He said, secondly, he's my Sunday school superintendent. And he works harder than anybody else. Maybe two or three other people combined. He cares about you. I need him. And if I need him, you need him. And then the third thing he said, he says he tithes. He puts more than 10% into the church. And I need him. And then the last thing that he used as part of his reason for refusing to let him die is he said, death's an enemy and we just refuse to give place to the devil. Well, long story short, he had to do this another two times as he continued to take turns for the worse. But finally, he came out of it. He was completely healed. They had taken x-rays of his shoulder. I'm sorry, his, uh, his elbow that had been shattered in the machinery when he fell. And they said he'd never be able to reach up and touch his shoulder. And so they set the thing in an angle like this. It's either going to have to be straight or setting it at an angle. So they set it at an angle. And when he came out of this, when, he, when the power of God raised him up, he stood there and started doing this with his shoulder, which he was never, or his elbow, which he was never supposed to be able to do. And it turned out to be a real phenomenal thing because the doctors and the insurance adjusters go by the doctor's report. And the doctor's report says that he'll never have use of that elbow. And so they paid him something like $2,700, $2,800 for the loss of the use of his elbow. All the time he's standing there showing them he can do all the things that they said he couldn't do. And so when he got out, he came back to church after a period of time. And when he first came back to church, they, Brother Hagin wanted him to give his testimony. And so he did. And he said something along the lines of, don't ever feel sorry for a Christian when they die or when they experience some kind of tragedy like this he said I never remember feeling any pain I remember falling but I don't remember hitting the machinery he said from there on out I never had a, a moment's worth of pain I felt like I was enveloped in the love of God but he said I did die he said I went to heaven I saw Jesus standing in front of me. I ran up the few steps that separated us from one another and was just about to fall on my face and tell him how much I love him. And the Lord says, you have to go back. And he said, I don't want to go back. He said, you have to go back. He said, I don't want to go back. Finally, the third time, the Lord answered him and said, you have to go back to the earth. He said, Brother Hagin won't let you come. <laughs> and Brother Haynes said, the Lord reached over and pulled, away, pulled back something that looked like a curtain. 
And he heard Brother Hagin's voice saying, I'm not going to let him go. Not going to let him die. Now, how did he know that? Brother Hagin certainly hadn't told him. Brother Hagin hadn't even told his wife about it. Nobody on the planet knew. Well, that might get you to thinking about your authority, wouldn't it? That became the impetus or the foundation for everything that I've ever learned about authority. Brother Hagin said he used the same thing on his father-in-law. His father-in-law lived to 70 years of age. He entered into the hospital. Brother Hagin went to the hospital room. He remembered this situation and things that had happened some years before with Brother Haynes. And so he just told the Lord, Lord, I'm going to rebuke this death and keep my father-in-law here. He said the Lord instantly answered him and said, don't do it. Now, folks, the fact that the Lord said don't do it means he could have. There'd be no reason for the Lord to say don't do it if he didn't have the opportunity or the ability to affect a change one way or the other, would it? He said the Lord spoke to him and said he's 70 years of age. He went through a list just like Brother Hagin had with uh, Brother Haynes some years before. So he gave him his reasons to go. The Lord said he'll never be in a better place than he is now. Let him go and come on home. And so Brother Hagin answered him back, answered the Lord back. He said, well, I will under one condition. You let him say goodbye to his family and have a glorious home going. He said, that's just the way it turned out. He said, you would have thought he was going on a cruise the next day. All the family was there. Everybody was laughing, joking, full of joy. And then during the next day, Brother Hagin was one of the only family members that was there. He was the only one that was in the room. And his father-in-law said, Kenneth, I'm dying. And Brother Hagin said, Mr. Rooker, I know that. But you're not afraid to go. He said, no, I'm not afraid to go at all. He said, just lie back and let her go. He said there was a light that came on his face and a smile. And his spirit left his body. Brother Hagin said, I could feel something I'd never felt before. He said, it was all I could do to hang on to the bedpost to keep from going with him. <laughs> Folks, there's an attraction to heaven. There's an attraction to heaven that pulls our spirits because that's our home. Now, here's two separate situations. Life and death situations, really. Where a man on the earth, a man that knew his position with God, knew who he was in Christ, knew what belonged to us as believers, exercised his authority, and affected a change in somebody's life.
Now, folks, God's no respecter of persons. If that works with Brother Hagin, it'll work for us too. See, the power that raised Jesus from the dead and set him at his own right hand is power that lifts us far above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Everything has a name on this earth and every name is subject to the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. We are privileged to have a book of authority because that's what the Bible is. It's a book that describes the goodness of God. It describes what he's done for us. And it describes what belongs to us, the authority that belongs to us because of what he's done. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for revealing to us just exactly who we are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we have the same life that Jesus has. We have the same new birth. And we have the authority that he's delegated to us on the earth. We thank you, Father, that whatever we call for or require in the name of Jesus. Jesus, you said you'd do it. You'd bring it to pass. Father, you said you're glorified when your word abides in us and we abide in you. That we ask what we will. We call for and require that which we need. Or that which we desire. And that glorifies you, Father. Father, we've made this so complicated that it seems oftentimes that it's out of reach. But it's not. It's simple trust in what you said you would do and who you said you are. So we choose to exercise our authority against the work of the devil. Sickness, we refuse to allow you to, to remain on our bodies. Poverty, lack, we refuse to allow you to stay. But instead, we call for and require the healing power of God to raise us up. We call for and require the the power of God, the blessing of God, the prosperity of the Lord to lift us out of the pits that we found ourselves in. We declare that by the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that we reign in kings as kings in this life. We declare that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. We answer every circumstance that would resist that which the Word of God tells us is, that is ours. We condemn every voice 
that rises against us in judgment. And we declare that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that we will always be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, we speak healing and health. Life to our bodies. And we thank you, Father, for watching over your word to perform it. We thank you that your word is true and that our words come to pass. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Say it with me. I have authority in the name of Jesus for my life to consist of only those things which are God's way in heaven. Hallelujah. Amen. Folks, thank you very much for being with us. We love you. Go use your authority. Hallelujah. You're just